A few weeks ago, I asked you a question. Why do we go to church? What do we do when we come here? We found out that the Bible says that the reason we come to church is to be equipped, to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, to do the work of spreading the gospel. Now, you're going to hear that message over and over again, and I, I hope today to be able to explain to you why this is of vital importance to us in a time such as the one we live in. There are a lot of valid reasons for people to come to church. There are good reasons. But the scriptures tell us that the primary reason is to be equipped. Scriptures also tell us that we all, every one of us, have a gift to use and that we should be using those gifts, working together to proclaim the gospel in our community and with outreach like Romania and some of the missions we do. It's, it's the reason we're here. It's the only reason that the church exists today is to spread the gospel. So, last week, I asked you another question. Who's the Bible about? And there is some rhyme to reason in what we're doing here. We saw that the Bible is about God. The Bible is about God's plan of redemption. Now, we like to read ourselves into the narrative of the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. We're in there. We're certainly in there. But the primary focus of the Bible is on God. It is on His character and nature and how He reveals Himself and His glory in His plan of redemption, the plan of redemption that those of us who believe in Him are the beneficiaries of. Now, both of the answers to those questions can be at odds with the culture we live in. Our culture is self-focused and consumer-driven. Now, by consumer-driven, I mean that it's one that is centered on doing everything it can to help us to fulfill and satisfy ourselves. So it, it, it's, it's based on satisfying as many people as they can, making as many people as happy as can be made happy. It becomes the lowest common denominator for how and why we do things so that everybody can be happy. That culture, I'm here to tell you, exists in the church universal today. William Tyrell, an archbishop of the Church of England who uh, had his, his tenure in the mid-20th century, said this about the church. And, and I think it, it kind of brings the balance to that, that idea that the church exists for, for those people who go to it. He said, the church is the only society on earth that exists solely for the benefit of its non-members. Did you catch that? The church is the only society on earth that exists solely for the benefit of its non-members. We would call them the lost. Now, as we've seen, neither the church nor the Bible is focused on the people of the church. We focus on the gospel. Focus on, focus on the good news of Jesus Christ. The story of God. The story of God's self-revelation. The story of God's self-revelation and His glory. Are, and, and the Bible is focused, the church is focused on God's mission and His redemption of His children through His only Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through Him alone. So, we keep on asking this question as well. Why is this important? Why do we need to know this? Listen carefully. It's important because we live in dark times, brothers and sisters. We live in dark times. In a way, I believe that we've been on the path here at Warrington Bible Fellowship that we've been on for the last 15 years for a time such as this. We, 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 we have somehow found ourselves in the middle of a, a, a move in the culture that is almost unimaginable. It's certainly breathtaking. Society has somehow upended itself. We are in those times where good is being called bad and evil is being called good. Any respect for leadership and authority is rapidly beginning to fade into the background. As a matter of fact, any semblance of authority has become an issue that it seems that everybody wants to challenge. Everybody wants to debate. Everybody wants to malign. And matter of fact, we're getting to the point now where people want to shoot at it. It's unimaginable. Our morals, 
the fabric that holds our society together are crumbling. They're fraying at the edges. And the church, the church becomes more marginalized every day. The great irony is that marginalization of the church is happening from within by liberal theologians and special interest groups that have far more influence than they should, and from without. From without by a culture that is no longer interested in hearing what we call biblical truth. It's changing. You know, our culture has become Pontius Pilate, who looks at Jesus Christ and goes, who knows what the truth is? We know. We know what the truth is. We're living in a time of turmoil. And I, I pray, I pray for our nation every day. I thank God for the nation of the United States. I think it's the greatest nation in the world. But I think we're in trouble. And I got to tell you something. I don't think it's going to get better. It may. It may, but if you look down the hallways of history and everything that has ever happened with mankind, no society that has ever gotten where we are right now has come back. There's no one that is the big turnaround story. So I don't, I don't know that it's going to get better. I've got to tell you something else as well. And, and just, just please hear my heart on this. Neither political party is going to turn this country around. They are not our salvation. And it, it's just not going to happen. It's time for the church in the United States to ask itself another question. What are we going to do about this? How do we exist in this, in this atmosphere? And not just how do we exist, but how do we become the influence rather than the influenced? I think our passage today has the answer. And I think it's the only answer there is. It's the only answer that offers any hope. And it's the answer that is thoroughly intertwined with the calling that I believe that God has placed upon Warrington Bible Fellowship. So in our passage this morning, we're going to gain two valuable insights into the Word of God. First, we're going to see who we are, and then we're going to see what we're called to do. And once we have those two insights in hand, taking into context everything we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how we're going to walk out that calling that God's given us. So our sermon today is called The Living Stone. Let's take a look at our text. I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Again, you want to keep your Bibles open. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once, you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. 
The Word of God, brothers and sisters, there it is. First thing we should notice about this passage is that the first verse starts with what? The word so. So. Now, as we've seen over the last couple weeks, that should cause us to want to back up and find out what the so refers to. So if we take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that in chapter 1, Peter tells us that God has caused us to be born again into a hope and a guarantee of our place in heaven. There's, some, there's reassurance in our salvation right there up front. Therefore, Peter says again in chapter 1, we're called because God has caused us to be born again, because he's given us this hope and this destiny to be with him forever. We're called to lead holy lifestyles, ones that exhibit what we call sanctification, the process of being made holy, the process of being conformed to the image of God. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1 call us to participate. We are to participate actively in that process. Peter's leading up to all the way through chapter 1 how we're able to do our part in this process of sanctification. He starts with, with chapter 2 with soap. Because of all that, put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So we start this, this whole participation by consciously putting away, by taking off, by stopping malice, deceit, envy, and hypocrisy. These actions alone, I just want to linger here for a second. Because if we understand what this says, and we are able to actively participate in this, these actions alone could change the world. We, as the body of Christ, we stop. We refuse to be angry. I think this is probably, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, this is probably one of the hardest lessons I can learn, is that I need to stop being angry about things, in particular about things that are, are outside the body, out, out, out there in the world, things that, that I have no influence and I have no hope of influencing. I need to, be, I need to watch my anger. So we need to stop being angry, and, and, and we need to learn this lesson. And what Peter's telling them, let me give you the Kavakis paraphrases here, here is... Don't get worked up about something that, that angers you. And don't let your anger control you. Don't convince yourself that your anger is justified. Don't think that somehow God is going to look at it. Stop, just stop thinking that your anger, stop thinking that your anger is going to change the minds and the hearts of the people around you. It doesn't work. It never works. I have never in my life gotten angry at somebody and had them go, oh, wait a minute. I realize I'm the problem. My heart needs to change. You're absolutely right. Thank you for pointing that out to me. If you hadn't been angry, I wouldn't have got it. <laughs> Does it happen at home? No. And, and, you know, it, it, it's taken me years to figure out that getting angry at my kids didn't fix them. It's taken me years to figure out that getting angry at a red light because the person in front of me doesn't go, doesn't make him go. You know what I do? I lay on my horn. You know what they do? They go. <laughs> Don't they? Peter says, stop being angry. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that our anger achieves exactly the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer. Listen, write that down, Proverbs 15.1. Talk about it at lunchtime. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Anger begets anger. It's just how it works. Getting angry only stirs up more anger. Besides, our anger, regardless of how we phrase it, our anger is not godly anger. I've been in this debate for about six years. Okay? 
We don't have any righteous anger. We've got all ways of justifying it. Well, I'm mad because of what happened to God when my television got stolen. (laughs) You know, so we don't have this thing called righteous anger. James tells us, he cautions us again about uh, letting our anger get a hold of us and, and thinking that it's righteous. And in cautioning us, he gives us a great guideline for life. Listen to this, James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Here's the guideline. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Just listen to that. If I could calm down and take the time to listen rather than react. If I would be slow to speak rather than jump on giving my opinion, if I would be slow to anger. Why? Next verse. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our anger does not produce righteousness. Peter has a lot to say about deceit as well. Small verse, but there's a ton in here. Peter says, don't think that you can change the truth. Don't think that you can alter reality by speaking a lie. Don't talk yourself into thinking you're innocent if no one knows what you did. Don't believe that you're going to lose stature if the truth comes out. Don't think people will think better of you if they don't know what you did or what you were involved in. They don't know who you really are. i got to tell you something. Whoever you really are, you're no better than the people around you. But i got to tell you something else. Whoever you really are, you're no worse than the people around you. We all need sanctification. God's working on all of us. And the way we're supposed to do this together is we're supposed to confess our sins one to another. Why? So that we don't carry a burden around. So that we're not stacking lie upon lie and trying to cover ourselves everywhere we go. We're supposed to be speakers of truth. Don't lie to protect yourself. Don't lie to get ahead. Don't lie to avoid losing something. Don't lie just because you have the opportunity to lie. Hypocrisy and envy are right up there with the the other two. Peter says, don't say one thing and do another. Don't tell your kids to be like Christ, then drop the ball. Don't go to church on Sunday and then go home and scream at each other on Sunday night. Don't put crosses up on your Facebook page one day and then erupt in anger and criticism of somebody across a political aisle the next day. Don't call others sinners when every one of us is a sinner himself. Peter says, stop doing that. Stop acting like the world. He says, if you're really saved, develop inside a strong desire for spiritual nourishment. For those things that will strengthen you so that you and me, all of us together, can grow up in our salvation so that we can mature in them so that we can begin to mature in our understanding of who we are as a people of God and who we are as a church of God who we are as individuals who we are as individuals that have Christ in us and are called to be putting him on display and what I love about Peter is he never just gives us a to-do list He explains why we should be striving for these things in our lives. That happens in verse 4. As you come to him, all these things, put these things aside. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. We're to do these things because we're coming closer to Christ. We're supposed to be coming more like him. Christ who was rejected by men, but chosen and precious by God. Christ is a living stone. There's a lot in there. Hold on to that thought for just a second. We're coming closer to the living stone. And furthermore, listen, here's why we strive for these things. He says you. That each of you that calls upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. You yourselves are living stones 
You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are being built up. We're being constructed. We're being molded and formed in the process of being made into into what? A, A spiritual house. Now, what this means is a place to grow and develop spiritually. A place to live spiritually. So we're being made into a spiritual house, but look at this as well. This is vitally important for us to understand today in our time. We are being made into a holy priesthood. You and me are being built up into a body of holy priests. All of us. We've got to hold on to that. It's a promise from our Father in heaven. We've got to hold on to that because you can travel to any number of cities today. You can go to Minneapolis. You can go to St. Paul. You can go to St. Louis. You can go to Baton Rouge. You can go to Dallas. You can go to Chicago. You can go to Baltimore. That, that list is growing tragically longer every day. And you can go to those cities and you can stand on the street tonight and you can hear angry, even violent debates about what? About men and women and gender and color and race and religion. And those debates have the potential to tear this country apart. Hillary and Donald aren't going to save us from that. Right now, all the political parties are doing for us is throwing fuel on the fire. The two potential leaders of the country are calling each other names. What do you think is going to happen in the streets? But the church, the church is called to a higher standard. Every man and woman in the body of Christ is being formed into a royal priesthood, a priesthood that has no part in those arguments and debates, one that comes bearing blessing and forgiveness and a message of repentance and salvation for everybody that's out there fighting. They're looking for meaning and purpose in our lives. We know what it is. That's our first insight. We're a holy priesthood. Wow. What do we do with that? You're a holy priesthood. Let me ask you this. What do priests do? I'm not talking about the people with the big hats riding around in bubble back cars. What do priests do? They minister. They minister. They minister to who? Listen carefully. They don't minister to themselves. They minister to the world, the people out there. They minister to the people that need to hear the truth. They minister to the people that need salvation. They minister to the people that need healing and redemption and an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They minister. What will our ministry be? It will be the gospel. Our ministry is the gospel. Our calling is to become ministers of the gospel. And how will we do that? It's all there in the passage. By offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to and through Christ. Listen. Peter's not talking about sacrificing bulls and goats here. He's talking about spiritual sacrifices. Sacrifices of things like spiritual discipline. Sacrifices of time. Sacrifices of spiritual gifts. Sacrifices of our own self-importance. Sacrifices of prayer and thanksgiving. The template for all of those things was in the Old Testament. But you know what? Those things, those sacrifices and rituals we saw in the Old Testament, were, they were just a shadow of what was to come. And now that Christ is here, now that Christ is in us, we are the beneficiaries of the real thing, not a shadow. And so we offer up the real thing, not a shadow. So we give of our time and our talent and our treasure, not for the building up of the church. Listen carefully. Not for the building up of the church. Why not? Because God's going to build up the church. Isn't that what the scripture says? God is building the church. We give these things for the sake of our ministry, for the sake of the gospel. And God has blessed everyone in the hearing range of this sermon this morning with a gift that will help us to do that. God will build the church. 
God is building the church. All we have to do is our part. All we have to do is our part. We're a giant machine of interconnected gears and cogs. And when we all work together, the machine runs smoothly. All we have to do is our part. How is God building the church? Well, Peter gives us the blueprint for that right here. That's a blueprint that WBF strives to follow and I pray will continue to follow. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. God's plan for His church starts with Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. Well, what's a cornerstone? Let me tell you what a cornerstone does. You builders know this. It's the first stone laid in the construction of a building. It orients the entire building. The entire building comes from that stone. It determines how the building will lie on the site that it's being built on. It's also the primary stone of the foundation. The weight of the building rests upon the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone of the body of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He's the cornerstone of Warrington Bible Fellowship. Everything we are and everything we do starts with Christ. He's chosen and He is precious. And anyone who believes in Him, anyone who puts their faith in Him, will not be put to shame. Now this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. The phrasing is a little bit different in Isaiah, but if you take a look in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and, and this passage right here, you'll, say that the Greek, you'll see that the Greek phrases are the same. Isaiah says, those who believe in Him will not be in haste. And if you, culturally, if you take both of these phrases and apply them to what the Jews were hearing, uh, what they were hearing is that uh, put to shame, be in haste, all bear this connotation of not being disappointed. Did you hear? If we put our faith in Him, we will not be disappointed. In other words, our faith in Him will not be an embarrassment to Him or to us. will not be misplaced. It will be fulfilled to its utmost. It will be completely and perfectly fulfilled. For those who don't believe, verse 7 and 8 tells us that the truth, that truth that we're talking about, is going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be an offense. Indeed, they'll stumble over it because, because why? They refuse to obey the Word of God as they were destined to do. Oh, that's a tough phrase. We could probably do a couple months sermon right on that phrase right there. But for now, we have to deal with what it says very clearly. They were destined to disobey. Here's the good news. We, the body of Christ, the church, don't share that destiny with them. We're not headed to the same place. Verse 9, but you, but each of us here, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, and here's the why, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There it is again, that royal priesthood, it keeps popping up. Must be important. Royal priesthood comprised of all of us. We're destined to to become a holy nation. This is a promise of God. It's not to say that we're holy right now, but we are on our way, brothers and sisters, to holiness. We're on the path of sanctification, and we know that we're going to get there because we, brothers and sisters, are chosen. And because He has chosen us, we belong to Him. We are His possession. And because we are His possession, we are destined to be with Him. Meanwhile, we are put here to talk about Him. It's our second insight for this passage today. What are we called to do? We're called to proclaim His excellencies. Brag on God. Talk about His greatness and His glory. We're here to tell His story. In other words, we're here to share the gospel. To share the gospel. That gives us good reason to fall flat on our face in the dirt. and Praise Him and worship Him and thank Him for making us part of such an awesome, world-changing work. 
Once you were not a people. You know what? We weren't. But now, now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you received mercy. Each one of us is here by the mercy and grace of God. It's a gift that he's given us. Brought together for a very specific reason and a purpose. Who are we? We're royal priesthood. What are we called to do? Proclaim his excellencies. Okay. I like that. What does it mean? We're proclaiming his excellencies. We're a royal priesthood. What do we do about it? What does WBF do about it? How do we, how do we walk out this calling? Well, first off, we do it individually. Individually, we use our gifts. But we bring our gifts into the storehouse. We, we work collectively. We work together. God put us together as a body. We're ineffective without each other. You can't take a gear out of the machine and have the machine work right. We all bring something unique to the table. All of us, each one of us. Each one of us is here for a reason. Each one of us has something God has given us that makes us a unique and vital part of what he's called this church to do. In the next few months, we're going to give you an easy way to bless this body with your gift, bless this town with your gift. And let me tell you how that's going to work, because if I could convince each of you to give us two to four hours a week, if I could convince you to give us 10% of the average work week, not counting commute, 10% of the work week to bring into the church, we can change this town for Jesus Christ. We can have impact. I mean, we're right here in the middle of town, folks. If we could all start pouring in a, a treasure of time into this church, two to four hours a week, we can change this town. Watch how that works. What's that look like corporately? We'll, we'll have the plan for you on how you'll be able to take part of it. And, and it, don't get scared. Nobody's going to ask you to do something you are unable to do. Nobody's going to ask you to do something that you're not equipped and gifted to do. We're not going to ask everybody to go out on the corners and preach or to teach if you can't teach. But I've got to tell you something. There are hundreds of areas in this church that we need help in. We're going to discuss a few of them this morning. But there are hundreds of areas that we need help in. There are hundreds of areas that we can reach out into the community in. We just need manpower. We just need woman power to be able to do it. So how is this going to look corporately? How are we going to be organized? I want to talk about that. We're about to experience a reduction in staff. Uh, I believe God is working among us. If we truly believe that God is sovereign, if we truly believe that he's going to take everything in our lives as we've been teaching for our good and for his glory, then we've got to believe that what's happening in the staff is for our good and his glory. Amen? So there's meaning and purpose to everything God does. We, we praise God and we thank him for the blessings that we have had with Seth and Becca over the last two years and the things they've brought to the table. We're excited to see God moving in their lives and moving them on to the next step. But we're actually, we are equally excited about God moving in the life of Warrington Bible Fellowship as well. So here's what the current staff looks like. Uh, their areas of responsibility, what they look like today. We've got Pastor John, Pastor Scott, Pastor Seth, and our, our cable and able-bodied assistant, Diane Strang. Thank you, Diane. Uh, and so I'm in charge of the pulpit, women's ministry, adult education. I oversee the men's ministry. I do a little bit of counseling, not much. Um, uh, me and uh, uh, Ernest Ariola and I oversee the deacons and the men's ministry. There's some areas we need help in there. Pastor Scott is, uh, oversees the children's ministry, the worship ministry, the connect groups. He does counseling. He's become a capable and, uh, I believe, gifted by God counselor. He's blessed a number of people with his wise and, and biblical counsel. Uh, he helps fill the pulpit. Uh, he's done a great job taking us through Ephesians and that whole series on a manner worthy of his calling. Uh, matter of fact, he'll be preaching next week on it, I believe. Uh, I'll be in Manassas preaching at uh, Jim Ramsack's church. We need to be praying for him. 
And Scott does some discipling as well. Seth was in charge of the remnant group administration. He uh, oversaw the youth ministry and filled the pulpit. But here's another thing that Seth brings that probably most of you don't see. Seth was in charge of IT. Um, He was in charge of uh, our electronics, the hardware and the software end of this. Now, you don't see a lot of that, uh, but I got to tell you something. It is not only a vital part of who we are and what we do, but it is also a huge time consumer. And I'm just going to give you an example. Walked in the other day. Um, Diane was having a problem with her computer. She's become pretty capable at fixing those, but she couldn't fix this one. So I started looking at it. Scott started looking at it. Scott spent the afternoon on it. I cut out after about an hour and a half. And see, that's what happens with IT. Uh, In order for all this stuff to work on Sunday morning, in order for you to be able to send an email and for everybody to receive it, all the hardware and all the software has to work. And we can easily lose a day or two or three trying to work out some glitch or integrate some new piece of hardware or get another laptop up and running. Scott spent almost two days getting a laptop up and running for the children's ministry. We don't see that, but it has a huge impact on our time. And every time we run into a problem, uh, we've gotten pretty good at handling problems. You know, we're, we're not computer illiterate, but all of a sudden the day's gone, the afternoon's gone, maybe a day and a half are gone. And for a group of people that are putting in six to seven days a week, all of a sudden you get behind and then things start falling through the cracks. So IT is a huge vacuum here and Seth has filled that well. Diane takes care of communication, she takes care of administration, she does some IT as well, and she manages the facility. Uh, She's not in charge of fixing the facility. Uh, We'll need your help with that. She's in charge of where the tables go, where the chairs go, and what rooms are being used, and who's using the church. And Diane does some limited counseling as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to take what God's given us, And we're going to restructure. We're going to create a new layer of leadership, a new layer of assistance that will aid the pastors and the elders in accomplishing the day-to-day operation of the church and the ministry. Here's what that's going to look like. So the elders are over and above both of these uh, 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 graphs here. Um, But we'll have Pastor John and Pastor Scott. Um, A lot of our our duties are going to remain the same. There'll be a little bit of juggling, but not much. But then we'll have a series of assistants. Uh, we're going to need four of them. Two of those positions are filled already. Uh, we have Diane as the administrative assistant, and she'll stay with communication administration, the facility management, IT, and some limited counseling. And we just brought Brenda Frazier. Is she here? She's probably working. Oh, there she is. <laughs> okay. We just brought Brenda Frazier on. Michelle uh, James has done a fantastic job of growing and maintaining our children's ministry. Uh, Brenda is taking that over starting in the fall. She's actually already started. She's going to take that good job that Michelle's done and continue to move us forward. So she will be the assistant uh, of family ministries right now. Uh, her duties will consist solely of the children's ministry. Uh, as we continue to grow and things get organized, her duties may expand. We need an assimilation and IT person. We have a candidate for this. We'll probably have some news for you within the next couple weeks, whether or not that will work out. I've already told you what IT is, but we need somebody to help us with assimilation. And what is assimilation? Assimilation is what do we do with the people that walked in the door for the first time? How do we get their name? How do we find out about them? How do we get them comfortable? How do we get them to take the first steps of integrating into the congregation, hook them up with a connect group, make sure they're familiar with where the rooms are and, and, you know, how to get around the church? Uh, How do we get them to come to a newcomer's reception, which, you know, we're going to have one now in, I think, a week? Uh, So how do we get them to that? And how eventually do we get them on the path to becoming a member? So we need somebody to help us with assimilation and IT. That's probably going to be a 10 to 15 hour a week position. And we'll keep you posted on that. But we're also going to create an intern pastor's position. This is a part time uh, position to help us with pastoral care. And that person uh, will be in charge of counseling, of discipleship, uh, He will help us fill the pulpit. 
and he will help us in our teaching of the adults as well. But somebody else we're talking to on that, we should have some news on that sometime in the next month or so. Uh, meanwhile, what we need for you to do is if you have expertise in any of those areas, come and talk to us. Come and talk to us, because I'm going to tell you something. We can do this. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We have the capability to get this done. With the help of the elders, each of whom is giving us already 10 or more hours a week. I know you don't see everything the elders do, but they're alive and active and, and heavily involved in what we do. With, with them giving us that, and with your help, if you can give us two to four, we can do this. I know that some of you look at that chart there and see a vacancy. I know that some of you look around and see empty seats. But I want to tell you this. Scott and I and, and the elders went on retreat last week. We spent Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and most of the day Saturday together talking about these things. Those are some of the hours that the elders spend that you don't see. We asked ourselves similar questions to what I've been asking this morning in the last two weeks. And here's what we came up with. Just as each of us has a gift, so do God's churches. Each of God's churches has a gift. Now, that's not to mean that each church has only one gift, but if you were to spend some time in every church that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in the area, you would see that everyone has one area that they do particularly well, one area that they excel in. Everyone has an area that they do exceptionally well in. This is what makes our churches a body. You see, we're not the only body of Christ. We're part of the bigger body of Christ. And we're part of a bigger body that all comes to the table with their own gifts. So, and we offer those gifts up to God for the sake of the gospel. And what we talked about this weekend is what we all know, brothers and sisters, at WBF, we can teach. We can teach and we can preach. We raise up people that can teach and preach. It's one of the gifts we've been given. And that's the gift that we're going to focus on. Now, we're going to continue to do other things. We'll be involved in other areas. There's going to be outreach and fellowship and counseling, benevolence, mercy, helps. I'd like to get into the area of creative expression in some areas. But teaching is going to be one of the fundamental elements of our foundation. And if you'll give us a few hours a week, we can become a teaching center for believers and and for unbelievers in Warrington in Fauquier County. We'll open up the doors and bring in the town. If the town won't come in, we'll open up the doors and we'll go out. We'll teach them. We'll tell them what we have learned. We'll go into the parks and the schools and the rest homes, anywhere we can, but the important thing that we need to understand is that we're going to do this together. We'll use the gift that God has given us for his glory. We'll use the gifts that he's given us for his glory. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you something that happened to me that just put a fire underneath me about all this. When I was in Israel in June, I had a free day. We had one and a half free days while I was there. I walked across Jerusalem and down into the Kidron Valley. And while I was taking that walk, this is about it, it, from where I was in Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley, it's probably about a 35-minute walk. I, I was praying. I was praying for home. I was praying about Warrington Bible Fellowship. And, and Kelly and I had been there in the Kidron Valley in 2006. This is what we saw. Take a close look at that. And the Kidron Valley now, as it was in the time of Jesus, is covered with olive trees. Those are olive trees. Those trees in 2006 are being pruned. They're being cut back. Now, when you cut back an olive tree, it's not a typical pruning. When I want to prune something at home, I go with a little pair of snippers, and I cut a branch here and a branch there, and I shape and I form, and so on and so forth. To properly prune an olive tree, you have to nearly destroy it. Here's what one looks like properly pruned. Now, all that stuff, you know, there are no leaves on that. That looks to me, uh, you take away all that stuff laying around the side has been cut off. That looks to me like a stump. Amen? I would call it a stump. I'd say, okay, that one's dead. 
Funny thing about this was when I took that picture in 2006, WBF was in a dark time in our history. We were suffering a tough time. Our pastor was down. Uh, he was moving on. There was a lot of questions about our future. I remember taking those pictures and thinking, that's kind of how we look right now. I wonder, I wonder how those trees are going to survive. I wonder, I wonder if we're going to survive. Well, here's what I saw in 2016. Those are the same trees. Those are the same trees. That's what they look like today. They're healthy. They're producing giant, huge olives. Every one of them, the, dry, the vine dresser went in and cut them back so that they would produce more fruit, not less. He wasn't trying to kill them. He was trying to make them productive. And here's the startling thing about this, that those trees have been pruned one more time since we went back. They prune them every seven years. They're right there. They're in the mid-cycle of the next pruning period. They get stronger and healthier every time they're pruned. With every cycle, they get healthier. You see, the vine dresser cares for the trees, so he prunes them. He cuts them back. John chapter 15 says this about the ultimate vine dresser, God. Every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, he prunes. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That's what he's doing to us. He's preparing us to produce more fruit. If you, if you walk from that spot right there, another five minutes to the east, you'll enter the Garden of Gethsemane. There are olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that have been there over 2,000 years. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about 2,000 years of pruning and shaping. How do, they, how do they survive that long? I'll tell you how. The strength of an olive tree, the strength of an olive tree is in its root system. Each time it's pruned, the root system gets bigger, a little bit bigger, and a little bit stronger every time. Eventually, that feeds up into the trunk. Eventually, the, tr the trunk begins to get bigger and stronger every time it's pruned. Every time the vine dresser comes in and prunes a tree, it gets stronger and larger. There are a few trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that are 10 feet or more wide right now. Here's one of them. That's an olive tree. You grow an olive tree in your yard, the trunk's going to be that big. That's an olive tree. That tree has a strong and sure root system. And that tree, brothers and sisters, is warranted in Bible fellowship today. We've been pruned. We have a strong root system. That root system is not going to change. It's been the same for the last 15 years, and it's going to be the same as long as I stand in this pulpit. But God is preparing us to produce fruit for His glory and our good. We need to get ready, brothers and sisters, because I'm going to tell you something. The people are going to come. They're going to come because we have the truth. They're going to come because we are willing to present that truth in an uncompromised manner. And this society is looking for answers. Amen. So you practice moving over and making room. But while you're doing that, you take a look at these empty spaces because some people will see empty seats and what we should see is opportunity. We should be inviting our friends to come in. They need to hear the truth of God. There are other churches where they can hear it. There's no problem if they go to another church. But we should be encouraging them to come to some church. I prefer that they come here because I think we do a good job of teaching. And if you've been taught, you should be eager to have your friends taught as well. For me, that's a reason to celebrate. We started this service by standing up and praising God, by exalting Him. Let's stand and praise Him and thank Him and exalt Him for what He's doing and what He's going to do among us.
He is exalted, and we do rejoice. Amen? Let's close with this, the, uh, the final thought from our passage this morning. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so brothers and sisters, let's go as God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belongs to Him, and let's proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Amen? Amen. Go. Go.